I'm Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, how can we do better by America's kids? We could sense that the tide was shifting even pre-pandemic to students really struggling with mental health, and we didn't have the tools to handle that. We just knew we are dealing with kids that are in a different space mentally than we've ever experienced before. My name is Jen Schnormeyer, and I am the high school instructional coach here at Gilbert High School in Gilbert, Iowa. You know, we see a lot of anxiety here. Our students have very high expectations of themselves and not achieving those self-imposed, usually, um, expectations is really hard for our students. You know, depression has become more prevalent in um, and more talked about. For us, we would notice kids kind of sinking into that um, quiet, reclusive behavior more often than we had pre-pandemic. So the teen mental health first aid steps are look, ask, listen, help a friend. Um, and we kind of make that into a little rhyme. Look, ask, listen, help a friend. And like they snap. And the first time I did it, the kids just looked at me like, what is wrong with you? And then I was like, no, we're, we're doing it. We're doing it every time. And we actually had an all-school assembly. And I was like, okay, those of you that had me for class, like we're going to show everyone else how we do the little song, the chant. And they did it. And it was, it's great because they remember that. To me, that's at the heart of Teen Mental Health First Aid is to let people know that they are cared for and that they are loved. And if they need help, they can get it. In too many ways, kids in America right now are not all right. They are the poorest age group in the country. One in six children is living in poverty, according to the U.S. Census. Nearly half of high school students in America experienced persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness in 2021. That same data from the CDC found almost a quarter of high schoolers seriously considered attempting suicide. And they're not doing well in school either, thanks in part to the pandemic. Half of students in public schools started the 2022 school year behind a grade level in at least one subject. So look, it's a grim picture. But science and just our daily interactions with young people tell us that kids are resilient. This season of Top of Mind is focused on finding fairness. We want all children in America to thrive. How can we do better by them? Today, we're going to hear about three different innovations to improve outcomes for our kids, starting with their mental health. So we actually first did our training in 2017, and all of our 6 through 12 staff was trained in youth mental health first aid. Mental health first aid was created in Australia 20 years ago as a training for adults who work with children. It has since spread around the world. Jen Schnormeyer and her colleagues at Gilbert High School in Iowa are among the millions of people now certified in mental health first aid. Yeah, so just like um, if I came across an accident, I might try to apply my best medical first aid in that moment, I am not a trained paramedic or a trained doctor. I'm not going to perform surgery. This is very similar to that. Like you assess the situation, you ask this person, are they okay? Where, what's going on? And then you go find help. You know, I think five years ago was when the floodgates opened of, you know, talking about mental health was really just becoming more normal and becoming more accepted in the world that we live in. And, you know, we weren't equipped with that. That's not something you get in your teacher training um, to deal with students that are having a mental health crisis or to deal with the student. You know, part of the thing that we did in the mental health first aid training in 2017 was we role-played what it would be like to have um, a mental illness where there's voices in your head that are really just talking negatively about yourself and how difficult it was um, for me as a person experiencing that to have a regular conversation and go through my daily activities with these nagging 
thoughts of self-harm or that I wasn't worthy or any of that. And, you know, there were a lot of teachers after that 2017 training that said that was one of the most worthwhile trainings I've ever been to. I'm so glad I spent my day doing that um, and came away from that with just a new perspective on the struggles that not just teens, but people are having with mental health. But then the COVID-19 pandemic shut down in-person learning and frustrated their efforts to implement all of this training they'd received. In that time, there wasn't a lot of adult connection. Students really relied on each other. So coming back from that, we wanted to make sure our peers or our students could see in their peers these warning signs of this mental health challenge and then felt empowered to go find an adult and get them involved and don't take on that role of being the therapist. Don't think you can do it all on your own because you can't. And we have plenty of resources that will get your friend the help that they need. Schnormeyer's school district learned that mental health first aid also had a version of the training for teens. So they got to work teaching it to all of their middle and high school students. The thing that I like most about the teen mental health first aid is its systematic way of approaching what to do. You know, our students in general are good to each other. They listen when they need to. But this really gives them a way to know when to get help, to get that adult involved. Don't You can know when something isn't right with your friend and it's okay to acknowledge that and then get them help. Um, whether that's calling 911, whether that's calling the suicide hotline, whether that's calling our student assistance program that all of our students have access to. You might worry that this would create a situation where it becomes sort of this surveillance thing, like now, you know, I have to be careful what I say because my friends are going to like report me, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. So how do you how do you address that or avoid that kind of situation? We have had quote unquote false alarms and there have been moments where a kid's like, I, that was totally taken out of context. But, you know, we say to the kid when we bring them in and ask them a question like, is this what's, is this true? Like, are, how are you doing? Is everything all right? And, you know, we'll say like, you know, this person said this because they care about you. They didn't say it to get you in trouble. And I think that is the culture of caring supersedes the culture of spying. And I'm so grateful that we have invested in that in our school, because I do think it's making a difference in the way kids are toward each other. We see that in the lunchroom. We see kids being more friendly and inviting kids to sit with them. Um, we see kids coming to us and saying, I'm worried about Susie because she hasn't been acting herself or I noticed Susie's been cutting and I'm worried about her. So we have seen more kids come to us than ever before with those type of concerns for their peers. What's a skill, um, a first aid intervention that you teach mm -hmm. the, the teenagers there? So the teen mental health first aid steps are look, ask, listen, help a friend. Look, ask, listen, help a friend. So look, you know, you want to take in what do you notice about your friend? Are you noticing something different in their behavior, their actions? And is it, is whatever this change is disrupting their normal life? So we um, talk about, you know, everybody has bad days. Everybody has bad moments. Um, but when your friend or you get to the point where that negative is hindering you from doing the things that you love. For example, a student really likes basketball. Well, if you're not sleeping well, how is that going to impact your basketball? If you are having negative thoughts about your body, how is that going to affect your ability to play basketball? And then we talk about like, if you have a day of that, okay. But if you have a week or two weeks of that, then that's really when it's a, a time to intervene and get this student some help. Mm. And you need to know your people around you to know what is normal and to be able to say like, ooh, they were one off today, but I've noticed for two weeks, my friend hasn't eaten lunch. I need to get them help. Ask is the second step. So that now you're going to ask that friend, are you okay? I've noticed you haven't been yourself. What's up? What can I do to help? And in the training, we talk about, you know, your friend might be like, everything's fine. Well, you know, you might have to come back and say, you know, I don't, I don't know that it is like, you just don't seem yourself. And, and maybe they'll continue to not tell you, which then that goes into the listen. Like, then you need to listen to what they're saying. And if they're saying, no, everything's fine. Well, you know, it isn't. 
it might be time to just go to help a friend, you know, or if they do divulge to you what's going on and what they're upset about, then, you know, be a good friend and just listen to that and, you know, help them through. If you can talk with them and encourage them to keep going and that you care about them, you know, that's one of the big things we hope students get from teen mental health first aid is that letting people know you care about them is a huge asset that we need to do more of in general. And that's something we've really seen an increase of here. Then the next step is help. We try to equip our students during the training with various ways they can get help. Um, But we, we tell them, you are not the therapist. You are not the psychologist. You can't fix this for your friend. You need to get an adult involved. Are they receptive to that? They are. They are receptive to that. You know, we know research tells us that peers are more likely to go to peers and from there, you you have to communicate. You know, the hardest part is, and we know, I'm sure you had a situation where a friend said, well, don't tell anybody I said this, but... Exactly. And you don't want to be the one that is betraying the trust of your friend. You don't. But a phrase that we heard during our instructor training was, your friend's life is more important than their secret. If they tell you they're thinking of suicide, you have to tell them, don't like their life is more important than you keeping that a secret and you can't save them on your own. And that is something we just try to encourage kids. Like you have to tell someone even when it's uncomfortable. You know, suicide is a, is something that I think is scary for all of us to, to think about trying to help, you know, if someone you love, someone you care about tells you that they're contemplating suicide um, mm-hmm. I think I think a lot of us panic about uh-huh. like what do I do in a case like that? How are you training young people to um, to address concerns of suicide among their peers? So that is one of the things that we did both, and actually each of the trainings that I did, we had to ask a peer just flat out are you thinking of suicide? And I remember just, it was so awkward and uncomfortable. And I started laughing when I did the role play. Um, And then during the training, we actually put the two questions, are you, are you thinking of suicide? And are you um, thinking of harming yourself up on the screen? And we have the kids read it as a group, you know, one, two, three, we're going to read this question. And we tell them asking a person about suicide does not put the idea in their head. In the teen mental health first aid, they say research shows that's not what happens. So if you ask them that, first of all, they're likely to answer honestly. If they feel that you care about them, they're going to answer yes, if they truly are. And I do think it's difficult because as a friend or as a caring adult, you don't want the answer to be yes. Because from there, the emergency of the situation becomes more apparent, you know, um, we have a protocol. You don't leave the student alone. You like all of that just comes into play and it just feels heavy when the answer to that question is yes. And as a friend, I think that would be really difficult as a teen to hear your friend say, yeah, I am thinking of suicide. And then what do you do after that? And so that's where, you know, we tell them, go get help immediately. Call 911. You know, it's okay to call 911 if you're worried about your friend. It's what you have to do to get them the help that they need. Um, but I do think that is a really difficult question that we have them practice so that they're ready in that situation. Can you tell me about a payoff moment that you've had as you've been implementing, going to all the trouble to implement this uh, this program and get all of the teenagers in the school district trained up? Yeah, so recently I got a text from a parent um, kind of later at night and it said, hey, um, my student is worried about student B and um, can you reach out to the mom and make sure everything's okay? And I said, absolutely. Um, The student had posted some things on some social media that were concerning and I reached out to the mom, texted her and we were able to connect. But Also, other students had reached out to the mom and had asked her to go check on the student as well. And for me, that was a huge payoff moment where our students are taking that look, ask, listen, help. They did it. Like they did exactly what they were supposed to do. When you're worried, you get an adult involved and you let them handle it. Like you can't handle this on your own. 
And I was so proud. <laughs> you know, it was like 11 o'clock at night. I was so proud of these kids for doing exactly what we told them to do. And, um, you know, the kid is getting the help. So I was, it was a moment where I felt really good about the time that we spend in class and that they came away with that and did it. As a parent yourself of a, of a high schooler, um, what would your advice be to, to parents who, who have teenagers who maybe they're not in a, in, a, in a school where this program is actually being implemented? Are there lessons from this program that you think families could implement themselves? Oh, 100%. I think, you know, um, the steps look, ask, listen, help a friend are anyone can do that. You know, any of us can be um, a shepherd for those of us around us, whether we know them well or not. But I think parents can sit their kids down and say, here you go. We are going to put the suicide hotline in your favorites on your phone. We're going to talk about who are adults that you trust. And I think that is a lesson any of us could teach at home or at school or anywhere is, you know, if we see something, we need to try to help that person. Did you use the word shepherd just a moment ago? I did use the word shepherd. I love that word. Talk to me about why why that word would come to your mind. Because I, when I think of a shepherd, I think of someone who tends to a flock. And that is something that I feel here at Gilbert High School, I try to do. I try to care for my flock here, whether that's students, whether it's coaches, whether it's teachers, whoever it is in our building, I want to care for those people and make sure they're here and that they know that they're valued and loved. And when you perform teen mental health first aid, you are being a shepherd for the people around you. And you're making sure that they know that they are loved and cared for and that you're going to get them help if needed in the same way a shepherd would do for their flock. Jen Schnormeyer is an instructional coach at Gilbert High School in Iowa, heading up the district's teen mental health first aid training. In addition to mental health challenges, America's kids are struggling academically. The headlines make that clear. Even as COVID recedes, our children are still paying the price. Many students not able to keep pace and parents wondering if there's a plan to help their children catch up. We've got the data now and things are bad. They're actually worse than most of us thought. In fact, I would tell you that we have an education crisis right now. Okay, but What if the way out of the crisis is to focus less on what kids lost and more on what we learned about our education system during the pandemic? This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. It's it's absolutely fair and valid to be thinking about things they missed, but we always want to be really attentive to the strengths uh, that we can build on because those are ultimately the the assets and resources that help kids grow. This is education researcher Justin Reich. He's head of the Teaching Systems Lab at MIT and host of the Teach Lab podcast. You know, a very strong belief I have is that when we in education are not sure the way forward, one of the very best things that we can do is talk to young people. It is my experience that if you talk to young people and promise them that you will take their ideas seriously, they will give you serious thoughts and serious ideas. Which is precisely what Reich and his colleagues at the Teaching Systems Lab have been up to the last few years. As the pandemic started in 2020 and schools scrambled to adapt, the lab began surveying students and teachers all across the country. They hoped to glean lessons that could make schools better, even then before COVID. This is a generation that learned an enormous amount about uh, technology-mediated communication, about uh, learning at a distance, and other things that will serve them throughout their whole lives. Um, One of the things that young people experienced during the pandemic was a really heightened sense of autonomy in their learning. Kids ate when they wanted to. They drank when they wanted to. They went to the bathroom when they wanted to. They took little naps when they wanted to. They wore sweatshirts to school, and some of those sweatshirts even had hoods on them. And even with a hooded sweatshirt, young people were able to learn. As these students came back from three months or six months or a year of having that autonomy, um, there were a lot of teachers and school leaders and students asking good questions about like, 
why do we have rules against hoodies in school? Like who, who are we, you know, we all learned fine with them when we were at home. Why can't we leave them on here? And we've talked to another number of principals who've um, decided that, that some of those rules and constraints are things that they didn't want to have to focus on anymore. Enforcing unnecessary rules is just a thing that takes a lot of, you know, it takes teacher's time to decide whether or not they're going to say something. It takes teacher time to talk with a student. It takes teacher's time to get principals and other kinds of folks involved. Um, and so, you know, one of my colleagues in Boston, Nima Vashia, you know, asked the question, what are the rules that we have that are about what learning? And what are the rules that we have that are about control? And how can we find the rules that are about control and maybe think about, you know, leaning back on those? Meanwhile, Reich's team found that the pandemic caused teachers to lean in to new opportunities for connecting with students and parents. Many were given time to do home visits or the flexibility to hold parent-teacher meetings virtually during the pandemic and hoped to see that continue after. Many teachers told us that the pandemic reinforced for them the incredible importance of relationships for learning. And when we feel connected, when we feel safe, those are precursors for good learning. I have a colleague, an amazing math teacher who works in the Boston Public Schools. He grew up in South Central LA, had a challenging childhood, became a math teacher. Um, and I'd had conversations with him before the pandemic where he said, you know what, like I teach, you know, advanced math classes and maybe my kids are in tough circumstances, but like when we come to class, we do math. We leave the rest of our lives at the door and we come in and we do math. And the thing that he told me after the pandemic was when I had a chance to see where kids were learning and what they were doing and what they were dealing with through the lens of their laptop cameras that they were in their homes, um, I really thought differently about those beliefs. One of my local elementary school principals uh, very early in the pandemic said something along the lines of how much we had taken for granted school buildings. Um, he said, in the before times, we brought 300 students together in one place to learn. Um, and all of them sat at the same desks, in the same chairs, the same tables, the same equipment. And at that point in the spring of 2020, he said, now we're trying to create learning experiences for 300 students in 300 different places. Um, and we know those places, those environments they go to learn are really different. They're, you know, in very basic ways, they're kids who have their own rooms and they're kids who share rooms with other people. They're, they're kids who live with lots of adults around to support them. They're kids who are the adults, um, who are the, the caregivers who have to take care of younger siblings. Um, in, uh, in some of the very earliest reports, um, we did a study where in March of 2020, we read all 50 states' uh, initial guidelines for emergency remote learning. And there are another number of state policy documents that called for grace, um, bringing a, a, a sense of grace to the lives that young people were leading, which is not, you know, I don't know if you've ever read uh, things that are produced by state departments of education, um, but they usually do not refer to grace as one of hmm. their sort of key ideas. Is they usually refer to things like adequate yearly progress and right and rigorous like standards. Yeah, <laughs> professional development. So, is that principle that you were just referring to thinking differently about the role of the the school building? I mean, the school can't be all things to everyone, but but are schools trying to or doing more? Do you think, or should could maybe do more to address some of the inequities that that their students are experiencing? I mean, in many respects, I hope not. I talked with a group of principals and was saying to them, this cannot be your job. Like fixing inequality cannot be your job. Um, and some of them pushed back and said, you know, look, Justin, this is the work. This is the work right now. Like, you know, our kids are missing these opportunities. And so we just have to provide these social services for them. So let's provide food pantries in schools or let's provide, um, you know, safe places while your parents are at work. One of the kids, even in the in one of the studies, you know, there was like this question, like, what do you like to see change, you know, when you come back next year? And one of the kids is like, I'd like a pool. Yes. And, you know, and, and that, I mean, we, you know, we laughed the first time we heard that. And then we do what we try to always do when we talk to young people, which is to take their ideas really seriously. And part of what he was telling us was that in his world, the, the challenge of the pandemic were just a continuation 
of the inequalities that he saw around him every day as a kid growing up in urban Boston, looking out at the sub, you know, the very affluent suburbs around him. Um, but it should not be the job of the local principal to figure out how kids get a swimming pool or, or really how they get fed. Like we should, other municipal officials, other state officials should be taking that on so that schools can focus on their most important function, um, which is teaching and learning. What this generation actually needs is generational support so that we're not just trying to catch them up in the next six months, but we're recognizing that it's really going to take a generational effort to make sure that they move into adulthood um, strongly and smoothly. Hmm. So what might one of those interventions look like? What would a generational, like, can you give me an example? Uh, it, would involve, it would involve substantially increasing the amount of funding that we have for public schools. Um, it would also involve recognizing that the social welfare system for children in the United States is among the very weakest in the affluent world. And that, you know, young children should not live in poverty, just like we decided um, a few generations ago that senior citizens should not live in poverty. And we developed Social Security and Medicare, which have been enormously successful at reducing the poverty rate for the oldest Americans. We should make those same kind of efforts. Um, and, uh, you know, we should also make sure that young children have health care. We should make sure that young children have uh, mental health support. We should make sure that they're ready to learn by making sure that they have uh, computers at home, that their homes are connected to broadband. And I think it's enormously important that all these things should not be done by schools. And it is really not a moment to be asking the question, what else can our schools do? Because our schools and school staff are completely tapped out. You have to understand how utterly exhausted America's teaching force is. You know, if you're in a situation where school staff are exhausted and where schools aren't working the way that we want them to, you actually can't solve that problem through addition. You can't solve that problem by saying, okay, what else are we going to ask people to do to make this better? If to start, which is counterintuitive with what can we take away? What can we take off of teachers' plates? What can we take off of schools' plates? What are ways that municipalities, that states could step up and take over some of the things that schools are doing right now so they could have more breathing room to focus on their core competencies of teaching and learning? Would you share a few examples of subtraction in action? I'm so glad you brought that up as a, um, it's it's one of the key lessons that came away also from the pandemic learning and studies that you've been doing, which is that I, I guess the pandemic in some ways kind of highlighted some of the things that are ripe for subtracting. You know, in many places for the last three years, we've known that there's no way that kids are going to have as much academic content learning aligned to standards as they would have during a typical year. But as far as I know, very few states, very few school districts have said, okay, um, what we're going to do in response to this is we're going to narrow the curriculum. We're going to go back through our curriculum standards and we're going to say, these are the most important pieces and these are some things that we're going to take away so you can focus on those most important pieces. But the fact that states have not done that, the fact that districts or schools have not done this doesn't mean it doesn't have to be done. Um, Teachers have been triaging like crazy over the last few years, making their own idiosyncratic decisions about what's important, what's not. If we could have systems that make some of those decisions together, we might be able to build school systems that focus on fewer things and do those things better. Hmm. Are you saying that that it was really only during the pandemic that 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 it was uh, impossible for schools and classes and teachers to really cover everything that was expected of them. And so they had to triage. But now that we're back to, for the most part, in most places, we're back to in-class learning, full-day learning most of the time. Is there any need to try to do less, to to subtract from the, the, the amount of stuff we're trying to teach kids? I, I do not think that your listeners should come to the conclusion that schools are back to normal. Um, in affluent areas with, um, with well-supported schools, with well-compensated, well-resourced teachers, well-resourced schools, affluent families, the, the schools that my kids go to, they look a lot like they're back to normal. Um, 
in the places in this country which serve students just arriving in this country, students living in poverty, students um, from marginalized backgrounds, school does not yet feel back to normal. And so, you know, we do not yet have post-pandemic schools. These are places where teachers and students and communities are still facing real challenges. And so for those reasons, I think it's a particularly good time to think about what are, how can we get rid of some of the things that are less important so we can focus on the most important things. Did you have any experience with that uh, as a teacher yourself? I know you taught, uh, I think it was high school, right? Or middle school for a while? I did, actually. Um, I mean, maybe this is a good example of it, but this was back in 2004, um, and I was teaching ninth grade world history with uh, three or four other colleagues. And we were teaching this this world history class called History of the Human Community, and it was kind of like a death march from prehistory to the Renaissance. Um, And at the end of one year, we were sort of looking at each other being like, I don't think any of us like this class. And probably the first major school change initiative that I was part of was working with a small group of colleagues to take that world history class and to say, let's choose fewer areas of focus. Actually, the thing that we decided to do was look at contemporary conflicts that were happening in the early 2000s um, and trace the identities of the people involved to their origins in the ancient world Hmm. and medieval world. And uh, kids... Kids loved it, and the school is still teaching it that way. And a huge advantage was we weren't trying to do early hominids in three days and the Olmec Empire in two days and the Incan Empire in another two days and the Aztec Empire in another day. We just said, breezing through those kinds of things, which we do way too much in our curriculum, um, is not going to do what we really want to do in this class, which is expose young people to ideas and cultures from different places and help them develop some proficiency in the work that historians do. Like the the most important things that we wanted to do, we could do better if we did fewer things. And I don't want to say that it was not extremely painful making those choices about what to cut. I mean, the reason why we don't, why we can't, it's hard to do subtraction and action is that like, there's not a bunch of random stuff in our schools. You know, almost everything we put into school systems has some kind of stakeholder that feels strongly about it. You know, when we decided not to teach the Greek and Roman empire, because we were pretty sure that our kids had gotten it somewhere else, there were some teachers in my department who really felt sad about that, who felt like a big part of their identity was teaching Greek and Roman history. But when we decided to reduce, we eventually learned that there were lots of benefits of doing fewer things well, that we could really build better, more powerful, more meaningful, enduring learning experiences for our kids that way. Can you think of a finding in your research or a conversation that, that gives you a lot of hope? right now about the state of education in this country or where where we could be headed? Yeah, I have all kinds of sources of hope. Our teachers are truly extraordinary and I'm not sure we deserve them. Um, And uh, one of my favorite uh, conversations I had was with a group of educators from Madison, Wisconsin. And one of the things that a teacher said was, we know how to change. We've been changing every three weeks for the last year and a half. We know how to change. That is an incredibly important asset in schools and one that I want to celebrate and and highlight. The work that they did during the pandemic was innovative. It was deeply committed to young people and their learning. It showed an openness to change, a willingness to change. And and their success is reflected by the fact, um, you know, there's a, there's a, There's a contingent in this country that is very upset with all kinds of aspects of public schools. Um, But education researchers have surveyed parents over the last three years, probably more than any other time in U.S. history. And parents are across the United States are overwhelmingly satisfied with their local public schools. It's very common. It was the case all throughout the pandemic beforehand. Since then, that usually between 70 to 80 percent of of parents on a survey will say that they're satisfied or very satisfied with their local public schools. So these are institutions that have done an amazing job earning the trust of families. You know, so much of the pandemic felt like it was something that was happening to us, but our response and how we build back can be something that we do together. Um, 
And I think there are lots of folks in the public who have been, you know, very disturbed about the challenges that young people have faced over the last few years. We haven't all agreed about the source of those challenges. We disagree about the wisdom of closing schools or, or how schools responded or those kinds of things. But I actually think there are many Americans who believe that, that young Americans really got a raw deal over the last few years. It's just going to be years to try to build back some of the opportunities opportunities they missed, some of the things that, that we lost. And as a country, we should think about what does a generational commitment to those students look like beyond the sort of emergency pandemic funding? How can we make sure that those kids have enough to eat, live in safe homes, are not struggling with poverty, and can go to well-funded schools every day and do great learning? Justin Reich is a faculty member at MIT, where he runs a research group called the Teaching Systems Lab. He's also host of the Teach Lab podcast and author of Failure to Disrupt, Why Technology Alone Can't Transform Education. So we've talked about interventions aimed at the mental health and educational challenges facing America's kids. Let's think now about an aspect of life affecting nearly a quarter of children in this country and it's linked to poverty and poor academic outcomes. There are more than 13 million single parents in the U.S. Three times as many single parents report difficulty affording childcare, and single parents report higher levels of emotional distress. Margaret Gray spent 15 years as a single parent, one income, three jobs, five children. Tough doesn't even begin to describe what the Orlando mom went through. The United States has the highest rate of children living in single-parent households of any country in the world, according to the Pew Research Center. Nearly one in four American kids lives in a home with just one parent and no other adults. The vast, vast majority of those are single moms. And that number has been increasing for decades across all races and ethnic groups. Now we have a national crisis uh, in terms of fatherlessness. So what can we do to improve the chances those 24 million children will thrive? I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. I was raised uh, by a single mom. There was no father in my home, and I always wanted to know why was it that men deserted their families? Uh, and that, that was the way I posed the question as a, as a youngster. Ronald Mincy is a professor of social policy and social work at Columbia University. Prior to that, I was a program officer at the Ford Foundation doing research on low-income fathers and families. And uh, uh, it's a, a passion of mine for most of my adult life. As the middle child, I got to observe what being a single parent was, was about. You know, I was a child who helped my mother bring home the groceries. She, she worked throughout her career. Uh, she raised three boys in the South Bronx by herself. And she, she's my hero in a lot of ways, but it, it, was, it was a very hard life. When Mincy graduated high school, he thought he might become a lawyer. So he got a job as a clerk in family court for the state of New York, handling cases of fathers failing to pay child support. Uh, my job was to um, write the, the judge's child support orders down to translate their sloppy handwriting and type it up and put them back in the file. That's what I was supposed to do. One day I realized my mother's case must be in this file. Over the next month or so, I looked for my mother's case. I went to the McKenzie's and the somebody else's, and I narrowed it down, narrowed it down until I got to the file where the Mincy's had to be. And I went into that file, I found my mother's case, and I found a case about that thick, right? Five inches. Right, that described uh, my family history in ways that I never knew. And I was furious. I was furious at my mother, I was furious at my father for what left us, you know, being raised in the housing project in the 1950s and 1960s. Furious at the choices they'd made. Furious at the things they did. I was also furious at the child support enforcement system because my mother had to go back into court time and time and time and time again attempting to enforce the, the financial child support order that he had and he continued to not comply with that order and instead of trying to sort of help this uh, family figure out the their, their, their challenges. It, it just uh, kept my mother on this rolling course and my father continued not to comply. I was furious mm -hmm. and I said, one day I'm going to fix this, all right? And 10 years later, I'm still at that. And so uh, 
this is my passion, this is who I am. And and the passion is to understand, first of all, why fathers leave. Why, why fathers leave, right, right. Uh, and why they don't support their children, and I mean support in a big way. Those questions and that anger drove Ronald Vinci to become a social policy researcher. They fueled his studies at Harvard and then MIT. And early in his research career, Mincy co-founded a long-running and now famous study comparing children in single-parent households to those with two parents in the home. It started in the 90s, and they're still following those families. Uh, The question in the Fragile Families uh, study, now the Future Family Studies, was how does the circumstances of parents influence children's well-being? At the beginning, Mincy was still very focused on understanding why fathers leave and how that harms their kids. But as the study progressed, Mincy was stunned to realize that he'd been wrong about fathers who are absent from the home, or at least that he'd been painting them with too broad a brush. Because fathers are non-resident, it does not mean that they're absent. Mm. Many non-resident fathers who've never lived with their children are still romantically involved with the mother of the child. They are, they're visiting mom, they're in romantic relationships with mom, okay. and they see her fr- quite frequently. And when they do so, it lowers the household's food insecurity. Okay, that is to say, he brings uh, groceries. He, or he brings, brings groceries or takeout, mm-hmm. right? And so, uh, for the for the single parent household, which is why you know I, I think that that whole idea is a misnomer. Mincy doesn't use terms like absent or deadbeat father. He now sees non-resident fathers as a vital resource to improve the well-being of their children, a resource we've been ignoring, or worse actively undermining. It's become very clear to me that the emphasis in social welfare policy with respect to non-resident fathers is to make sure that they provide financial support to their children after the mom and dad separated. The problem, says Mincy, is the child support system is laser-focused on extracting enough cash from fathers to make a measurable difference in the education and economic outcomes of their kids. But that level of support is just unrealistic for low-income fathers and can even discourage the other kinds of support Mincy says these men are often providing, like groceries and birthday gifts and time spent babysitting. Mothers and fathers have informal arrangements for him providing financial support to the child. And the problem is when over the first three to five years of the child's life, the father doesn't faithfully live up to the informal agreement then mom is required to bring him into the formal system in order to get help. Takes him to with court the finan- to, right, right, to, for right. child support. Or uh, she needs housing, she needs food stamps, and for any of those public benefits, she has to surrender her right to child support over to the state hmm. as a condition of qualifying for these benefits. So did, is the fix to lower our expectations of child support or stop enforcing them in the same way? There are two things. One, we need to right-size child support orders. That is to say, bring child support orders closer to the ability of these non-college, non-resident fathers, how much they actually are able to pay. And uh, and we are already on this road. Uh, in 2016, there was a federal requirement that uh, state child support offices all around the country bring child support orders into better alignment with the actual ability to pay for low-income non-resident fathers. So that's one thing. But we also need to marry uh, our expectations about financial provision to helping fathers make sure that the engagement that they have with their children works. When fathers provide financial support at any level, it, it increases the amount of time they spend reading to their children and in cognitively important activities, but those activities don't matter. It doesn't influence the children's vocabulary and it doesn't influence their, uh, their, their, their academic achievement uh, in reading and math when they're nine years old. So we want them to provide financial support within the means that they're able to do so, but we also want to make sure that when they pay money, which is related to how frequently they read to their kids, that reading pays off. So now, if you could get them doing more of that, even no, if no, they no, weren't no, paying no. more Not money? Not more, better. So I'll give you an example. I now have a five-year-old grandchild mm. to whom I read, and I've learned the importance of how to read to children in order to make that reading pay off. My grandchild, whose name is Emmanuel, man, he's a budding paleontologist. At five (laughs) years old, he can tell you the name of any dinosaur that ever lived. Uh, His favorite book, that our favorite book, is 
tiny T-Rex in the very dark dark. So first of all, if I wanted to teach him something and want him to focus on something that he doesn't really care about, do it through a dinosaur, okay? Ask him, man, um, uh, is an Allosaurus bigger than a T-Rex, right? I can get him to focus on these size differences mm -hmm. and scale by expressing that question through a dinosaur. Right. Secondly, when I read to man, I, don't, I just don't read to him. I give him an opportunity to interpret the story to me. It's called dialogic reading, right? And I make sure children at five years old have very short attention spans. And so when he gets tired of reading, stop. Right? Uh, in part, mm -hmm. I'm reading to him, I'm hugging him, he's, he's sitting on my lap, I'm holding his belly, and then he'll get tired of that, and I have to often let him lead our interactions and not my leading it. And then, and then I have to release his imagination. So, we now move our tiny dark, dark story to the basement. And he says, Granddad, Granddad, let's go down in the basement and see, uh, and see where the gnomies are. The, the, the gnomies are these little creatures and that's why they're afraid of the dark. And he's now created this whole world <laughs> that's in our basement about tiny T-Rex and the, and, the, and the very dark, dark. And in the end, it will increase his vocabulary, it increase his love for reading and the like. And most 16 or 19 to 21 year old men who are the non-resident fathers of, this, of these children have no idea about how to read to their children in order to enable their children to have higher vocabulary, academic achievement, and so forth. So how do you teach well, these fathers well, to do this? Whoa, whoa, whoa. By inserting them into Head Start programs and early Head Start programs so that they learn to read and, and do other things with their children effectively. So we have an infrastructure that works mostly with mom to help to improve the school readiness of young children when they are young because their minds are like sponges when they're young. Okay. Uh, the, but we have very sporadic participation in the Head Start program and the early Head Start program around the country. In places where fathers are encouraged to participate, irrespective of whether they're resident fathers or non-resident fathers, we know that uh, improvements in the quality of what they're doing with their children improves their, their children's academic achievement. And, uh, and are they interested? Do you think um, fathers... I think it, when you talk to... Uh, I wrote the, my uh, this uh, previous book on... Um, it's, it's so fascinating. It's called Failing Our Fathers. And we interview, we, we match quantitative data with qualitative data. And one of the themes that emerged in our interviews was this notion of educational regret. Right. Uh, th we wrote this book during around 2010, during the Great Recession, and many non-resident fathers, white, black, and Latino, blamed themselves for losing their jobs during the Great Recession. They didn't understand that this was a national phenomenon and that many people lo lost their jobs. But many of them thought that if I had gone further in school, I would not have been as vulnerable to this recession as I was. And I don't want that to happen to my kids. Against the backdrop of all this research and advocacy on behalf of non-resident dads, Ronald Mincy realized he still didn't have the answer to the one question that started everything for him. Why did his father leave? One day I was listening to this radio program and uh, the program was about forgiveness. And it talked about how people who fail to forgive people who have offended them, sometimes they have lifelong bitterness, right? And I wanted not to have that ongoing bitterness about that issue with my father. And so as I was, you know, maturing, I would make sure to go and visit him and to talk with him about just try to unpack uh, what all of this was about and tried to get him to talk about the answer, his version of uh, the answer to my question. And I found that it made him very uncomfortable. Um, and uh, uh, what, what I learned from that experience was uh, there were a lot of challenges in his own life that would force me to reframe my question. He was a sort of a, a, a creature, an African-American creature of the Great Depression. He was in the Navy, uh, and when he came home from the Navy, he, like his whole entire cohort, were very disappointed that their service to this country wasn't honored by the radical, with a radical turnaround, rewarding them for their service. And so... That they were still subject to segregation, lots of discrimination. legalized segregation he, yeah, he, grew, discrimination. he grew up in, um, he lived in Harlem, uh, and at one point, uh, he didn't own a home until uh, his house burned down in a fire and uh, he was able to get insurance benefits and eventually bought a home in a middle-class community in Long Island. Mm. 
And the first time I went to his house, um, I had one, two, three half siblings that I never knew about. And uh, why in heaven's name were me and my three brothers raised in a housing project in the South Bronx, and my father lived in this palatial, from my vantage point, uh-huh. uh, uh, home with, with, with my half-siblings. Who had a father. Who had a home. father in their home. What sense did this make? Uh, and nevertheless, he was a proud man. He was proud to have a son who despite that circumstance, went to Harvard, went to MIT. You, he was uh, Exactly, and I allowed him, despite the fact that, um, that he contributed very little to all of that, I forgave him and I allowed him to celebrate that accomplishment. And, and then in the end, he passed away, despite the efforts that I had made to reconcile and the like, uh, there was no mention of myself or his or my siblings, my brothers, uh, in his funeral documents. None whatsoever. And I remember standing in front of his casket. I couldn't ask him, Dad, what happened? You know, <laughs> right? And I looked over at my older brother, and he was a different temperament, and said, Ronnie, you know, don't worry about it. stuff happens. And um, and that was what it was. But I knew that I had done what I needed to do. And I, and sort of my work over the last years was trying to figure out how I could, um, you know, I think in our society, our views of non-resident fathers are very pejorative. Uh, They are pariahs. uh, But, you know, I think uh, my own view is that we need to, stuff happens to to those men. I understood my father's story as a consequence of what he had. But I think our, our, our society's ideas and the way in which we, we don't provide a way to, to reconcile those men with their families to reconcile those men into the community and to give them the support that they need in order to be better fathers to their kids. And I had that personal journey, and my work has been, in part, trying to uh, allow that personal journey to be part of the experience of more men, children, and families in the country. Ronald Mincy is a professor of social policy at Columbia University and director of the Center for Research on Fathers, Children, and Family Well-Being. He's also a co-principal investigator of the Future Families and Child Well-Being Study. You know, it's fascinating to me that all three of the interventions we heard about today tackle a problem by turning a shortcoming into a solution. Non-resident fathers become an untapped resource to improve their kids' lives. Pandemic disruptions point the way to better teaching and learning. Teenagers at the center of a mental health crisis become effective first responders in that crisis. In each case, doing better by kids took setting aside assumptions about the problem that we're trying to solve. Top of Mind is a BYU Radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by James Hoops, Madeline McKenzie, and Kimberly Beck, with help from Samuel Benson and me. Our sound designers are Brandon Lewis, Christian Mockatel, and Mitchell Towsley. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.